Great. So, Keith, just to get started, I'm, I'm really excited to be here today with you. Um, for those of you who don't know Keith, he's the CEO of the Cure Grin Foundation and also the host of several podcasts. Um, one is called Unlocking Bryson's Brain. I think you have another called my instruction manual. Um, so hopefully, I, 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 this is my first and only podcast. Hopefully, I learned something <laughs> about podcasting from you. Um, I'm just going to say I, I really recommend everyone listen to your podcast if they haven't yet. Um, it's called Unlocking Bryson's Brain. Um, and and I was wondering, because probably many people haven't, if you could maybe just take us back to those first few years of Bryson's life, some of the challenges you faced around getting a diagnosis and and some of the color around your decision to to dedicate much of your professional career. I think you were a journalist uh, mm-hmm. previously um, and actually really kind of switched gears into searching for, for a cure. Yeah. So I guess it was almost 14 years ago now that my wife gave birth to our second son, Bryson. And, um, you know, at, at first everything seemed normal with his birth and his growing up, his, his initial scores were good. He seemed like a healthy baby, but then when he was a couple of months old, we started noticing that he wasn't developing in the same way that his older brother had. So he wasn't holding his head up, uh, as strongly. Um, he wasn't tracking objects with his eyes. We went to do baby pictures and the photographer was trying to kind of get him to prop up his head on his fists and his head kind of kept toppling over. Um, so, so it was clear that something wasn't quite right in his you know, early development. And at about three months, at his three-month appointment, um, doc, we told doctors about this and they said, yeah, something is not developing right with Bryson. And um, they didn't know what. And that sort of started a nearly decade-long journey to find a diagnosis for Bryson. So during that time, he had MRIs and um, probably 15 different, actually, that, that it's probably even more than that. I would say at least 20 different blood tests to rule out different kinds of diseases. Um, he had a muscle biopsy. He had EEGs. So, you know, it felt like we were in the hospital kind of nonstop doing all of these tests. And we just got to this point where it seemed like it was probably some kind of rare genetic condition, but maybe we would never know what it was that Bryson had. And then we came across a doctor who um, recommended that Bryson get a whole exome sequencing test. And at the time, those tests, uh, and actually they're still not uh, paid for in the province of Ontario. Um, you know, we have a, a public healthcare system here, um, but that doesn't mean that everything gets, gets paid for. And so uh, we needed to get special permission for that test and that this geneticist was able to get it. And um, the tests came back and confirmed that, that yes, Bryson had uh, a de novo variant, meaning he didn't inherit it from Laura or myself, and it was in the GRIN1 gene. And so, you know, immediately on the way home, we started Googling to try to find out what that was. And there wasn't a lot to learn, um, but we found that there was a Facebook group with about seven other members. We joined and, you know, in the years since then, over the last four years, um, we've met many families uh, around the world with variants in the GRIN1 gene and the six other genes that code the NMDA receptor. Um, and about two years ago, uh, we hosted a conference here in Toronto. Families came in from across North America and we invited speakers from Toronto um, at the University of Toronto and at the Hospital for Sick Children. And 
what we heard from them was this message of hope. And they talked about how they really believed that this variant, um, that this, these genes um, could potentially see a cure, that the NMDA receptor, is, it's well known to be responsive to um, medical therapies. And you know we were in this fortunate position because unlike so many uh, genetic conditions, this involves a single gene, not a bunch of different genes. And so, you know, gene therapies could be possible. Gene editing someday could be possible. And from that conference, I kind of decided to make it my mission to learn as much as I could about GRIN and NMDA receptors and to kind of do what I could to bring researchers together and to connect families with researchers and clinicians and basically raise awareness. And uh, as part of that, I got together with some other parents and started up the Cure Grin Foundation. When did you all start the Cure Grin Foundation? Was that um, last year, two years ago? Was it before the, before the conference? Because you, you started the conference, right? Or at least you were part of um, starting the conference that you mentioned. Uh, I was part of, sorry, yeah, the, the conference in Toronto was before uh, Cure Grin Foundation. Right. Yeah. And what, what made you decide that, that you needed to start? Because you had this group of, of people um, organized on Facebook. Do, did you have any idea of how, what proportion of the total people worldwide, how many people actually have GRIN, how many families are affected by um, GRIN disorders? Was it, you know, most people were in the Facebook group or do you have an idea that there's actually, you know, many more people out there? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, I think it's one of those things that... Um, can happen a lot with these genetic conditions that have only sort of recently starting to be diagnosed where you start with just a handful and you think that it's an ultra rare disease. And, you know, the more things go on, we find more and more people around the world. And, um, you know, there, there's recently a paper that estimated that the number could be in the hundreds of thousands or, or, you know, even over a million that have variants, pathogenic variants in one of these genes. So, um, you know, which would still make it a rare disease, but not an ultra rare disease. And one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of rare disease um, people or parents kind of like to, you know, wear that, that badge of honor, like the, the rarer my kids' diseases, um, you know, the, the better. But in terms of, of getting biotech and researchers yeah. interested, obviously, you know, there, there's a lot of interest now in rare disease, but there still has to be um, a critical mass. They want to know that if they're investing time and money that, that there's going to be a potential return. Yeah. How, how did you navigate getting that diagnosis in, in the early days from an emotional level? I, I think you said it was dozens of tests over probably a decade. Um, and I remember from the podcast, one of the first tests that you had sent away to, to check for um, spinal muscular atrophy they actually didn't send it and you had a four month delay. I, and I imagine that must be excruciating, but it actually happens to, um, I would say probably the majority of rare disease parents experience an, an odyssey like, uh, like the one that you experienced. How, how did you actually handle that emotionally? Well, I think to be honest, my wife and I handled it in different ways. I was um, working full time and, you know, I think that maybe I was able to, sort of put it out of my mind a little more where my wife was, um, you know, decided not to go back to work yet. And so she was at home with the two little kids and kind of, you know, going to all of Bryson's doctor's appointments. And so I think it was, you know, extra tough for her, but, um, but it's, but it's tough. I mean, it's, you, 
you feel like, um, and especially when, you know, they, they get come, there came to a point for us where it felt like doctors, um, you know, they, they kind of felt like they'd done everything that they could and were sort of ready to give up. And so we were really grateful that, that we found this, this doctor. And in fact, you know, there's an interesting story that I tell on the podcast that my wife found this doctor that seemed like the perfect guy, um, at Johns Hopkins university in Baltimore, um, or Johns Hopkins hospital. We were planning to, uh, travel there to meet with him. And then he said, hold on, I'm actually moving to Toronto. I just got hired there. Um, so we were one of the first patients. Bryson was one of the first patients to go in and, and see him. Um, so, so we were grateful for that, but, but certainly that search for a diagnosis can, can take a, an emotional toll. What, what did he do that was so different from your, from all the previous doctors or, or clinical geneticists, obviously besides having the um, wherewithal to, to know about exome sequencing and, and pursue it? What, what was it that made his approach so different from the others? Um, his, he, he was, you know, at, at the very first appointment, we, we called him Dr. Cohen and he said, no, call me Ronnie. Um, he just really seemed to have a very patient centric approach. Um, and, you know, I think we'd heard from other doctors that maybe we would never get an answer. He told us, no, I, I think maybe, you know, we will figure this out. Um, and, and we'd had some very bad experiences with doctors. I talk about some of that in the podcast as well. Um, but just, he listened, he had compassion. Um, you know, after we had this initial meeting where we got the, the first diagnosis and it was just before the holidays. And he said, you know, I'm actually going to be in the office over the holidays. If you have any more questions, come back and see me. You don't need to bring in Bryson. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've heard from other families who get their genetics report and like, don't get to talk to a doctor or even a genetics counselor. So right. just having, having that, we were, we were really grateful that he kind of talked us all, all through it. How, how did he actually help you navigate the, the healthcare system? Cause probably at the time those were, that test was thousands of, um, Canadian dollars. I mean, it's still, it still is in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Was, yeah. was there some kind of, um, special program here in the UK, they're, they're starting to make this testing free and a lot more widely available, but I, I still think it's going to take some time. How, how did you manage that? Yeah. So I, I guess there's a process where we could actually apply and he kind of facilitated all of that for us. Um, he actually told us that if, if he couldn't get funding this way, then maybe through his research budget, we could right. get results that way. Um, but luckily the, the province came through. Um, but again, it's still not something that's covered. So you know, the number of patients in Canada that have been diagnosed with grin disorder, we're about one-tenth of the U.S. population, but we certainly don't have one-tenth of the, the diagnosis. So it's an interesting area where kind of like the private insurance in the U.S. is ahead of, of what the government's doing here. And I think that, and, and so, you know, if you have, if you have private insurance, that's a good thing. If you don't, it's, it's not so great, obviously, right. in the U.S. But um, I think this is an area where the, the cost benefit really seems like it, it should be in the favor of, of yeah. paying for uh, these, these tests, because if you just add up the costs of like all these one-off tests that Bryson had, um, it's got to cost more than, than the, the thousands of dollars that we eventually uh, was eventually spent for that, the whole exome sequencing. And now we're seeing that um, some of the Grin genes are starting to be added to um, some of the panels for intellectual disability and, um, and for, um, epilepsy. So it, it's possible that, you know, th those weren't on any of the panels when Bryson got his diagnosis or when he did those panels, but it's possible now that families um, could get diagnoses sooner. And certainly we're seeing 
some kids diagnosed as early as two or three weeks now, which is, which is new. Yes. And, and I think what the calculations often fail to capture in part, because I think it's really hard to capture is the non the non-medical benefit as well. I remember in the podcast, you were saying your, your wife in particular was really needed an answer around whether it was a degenerative condition or not. Right. So you knew how much time mm-hmm. uh, Bryson had. And, and I think that that question, the answer to that question alone is, is worth its weight in gold. Right. Even if the, even if there's nothing you could do from a health perspective, even that on the, and it's, it's very hard to quantify though, isn't it from a healthcare yeah. Perspective. Yeah. And even, you know, Ronnie Cohn, the doctor that I, the, the geneticist that I talked about, he, he sort of said that he, he had really come around where early in his career, he'd been the guy saying, let's not focus so much on the diagnosis. Like what purpose is a diagnosis if we don't have treatment and let's focus more on, on, you know, the condition and the, the person. Um, but he said that, you know, over his years working as a geneticist, he really came to understand that providing that diagnosis, even when there's nothing you can do, um, really can have such a huge benefit to the family. Yeah, and 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 I think one of the other I, I did my, my PhD work in rare disease, um, whole genome and exome sequencing. And one of the one of the things that I thought the group that I was a part of did really well it was it's here in the UK called Deciphering Developmental Disorders. But they would have a uh, I think it was a yearly meeting that was open to to participants and and family members. And it was amazing to be able to meet people that mm-hmm. that would say, you know, you, even if there even if there was not a, a treatment available, to say that they found a group on Facebook like you did, for example, and they could speak to someone who had a child who was, um, you know, maybe three or four years older than than theirs to understand, you know, to to have that peer connection or learning to understand whether you know whether what they're experiencing is different or or the same as others. Um, and I think the other thing that you all have done really well is um, it can be an amazing catalyst for research because if you have if you have seven families in a Facebook group, there's only so much you can do. But if you have a hundred, two hundred, I think you guys have a thousand people following you on Facebook, and you probably have a a really active community now that you start to get more people who are good at different things. Right? You have a you have an incredible gift of um, understanding the the spoken word and journalism and those sorts of things, and you probably have other people in the group that bring different expertise, so you can start to build a a coalition. Is that has that been your experience with Kiergren? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and, and not only that, but also just having like the global reach. So um, you know, there's people who are living in countries where they've been able to talk to to local researchers and get them interested in Grin that we would never have thought of. Um, so there's like a lot of research being done in Barcelona. And so there were you know, researchers doing that on their own, but then there's a huge now um, group of patients that have, that, that have come together in, in Spain. And um, because I guess they, they do genetic testing well there. And so there's a big group and they, you know, work closely with those researchers and, and that just helps drive it forward and, and helps those researchers build the case for funding and, and that kind of thing. I, I, there's a question that's come through on the chat that I think would would be really good to ask right now. Jesse says, what do you think about trying to get the federal government to allocate funding to Canadian universities who are willing to do these genetic tests for free? Not only would it be cheaper than alternative methods, as many universities have the infrastructure, but it would further Canada's research through our own institutions. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's probably a lot 
to think through in, in that. I mean, I think probably if it's something that's happening at, at universities, there need to be a process where um, patients or patient families are consenting to share their data or make their, their data available for research in a way that you know, it wouldn't necessarily be if it's paid for out of healthcare. So I think there's probably pros and cons. I think the best case probably is that patient families can still maintain their own privacy and it's actually paid for out of, out of a healthcare budget. How on that privacy and, and data point with, um, with your, your work at CureGrin, how, how do you, what stage are you all at? Do you have biotechnology companies that are now actively seeking your partnership out because they're developing um, potential treatments or, or are you needing to still build those relationships? Have you started as, as a group collecting, um, you know, collecting information, building natural histories to, to aid this sort of thing or, or where, where are you at in that process? Yeah, I would say somewhere in between. So we've um, for the most part, we're still at the point where we're, we are reaching out to biotech companies. There's certainly some that, um, half therapies that target the NM, NMDA receptor. Um, and so they're very, very interested in hearing from us. Um, you know, some of these companies kind of build compounds, um, you know, knowing that they do important things in the brain, but not really being sure yet where, where they're going to apply them. So, you know, a, a compound that they might build to target the NMDA receptor, maybe it's going to help with pain management. Maybe it's going to help with Alzheimer's, maybe it's going to help with um, depression, or maybe it'll help with these single gene grin disorders. And so, you know, often the way that the drug development works is they want to, you know, find something that they can prove to uh, the FDA or, or other agencies that are trying to prove the efficacy of these drugs. And so they'll, they'll kind of pick the one that, that looks like it could work the best um, and, you know, hope that there could be a bigger market after. So they're, they're very interested in, in working with us. And, um, you know, without, I can't, I can't really get into the details now, but there's at least one um, test that's uh, about to, to start with um, animal models that, that exist around these grin genes um, using one of these therapies. I think that was the final episode of your podcast, right? That you have... Um somebody has successfully created a, a mouse model. I wonder if you could tell people more about that, how, how that works and, and what it enables is, is the mouse, um, is it, uh, is it effective or reminiscent in any way? I know in some, some neurodevelopmental disorders, the it's, it's uncanny how um, much similarity there is between the mouse traits and, and the human traits, but in others, it, it couldn't be uh you know, it, it couldn't be further from what it's actually like. What has, what has your experience been? Yeah. So, I mean, there are um, probably about a dozen animal mouse models that have been made with different kinds of grin disorder that, that mirror the human condition. And so in the podcast, I was talking specifically about the one that was made with my son Bryson's condition. And um, so we got some preliminary results in January. And uh, so that was sort of just before COVID shut everything down. So I, I would say in terms of like phenotyping the mouse behavior, um, they hadn't really gotten to that yet in terms of how similar it would be to, to Bryson and the other kids that have his precise variant. But, um, but there certainly are similarities just generally with the animal models and, and the kids with grin. So, um, you know, the most obvious one is that the epilepsy is very common um, with, with these people who have grin disorder um, and, and many of the mice models have epilepsy, you know, they, they are certainly weaker um, 
there's this one test that that is done on loss of function mice here in Toronto where they they hold them upside down and try and get them to hold onto cages and see how long they can kind of hold hold themselves by wrapping their paws around the, the wires on a cage. Um, the, the mice that have the variants have a lot of trouble with that. So um, yeah, so there's there certainly are some similarities. What which and I I'd like to actually cover this in more detail because I know you have written and talked a lot about the the concept of a search for a cure and how this is actually not, you know, it's not as straightforward as many people think. It's a, it's a really personal issue for many families, how they approach this. I I think it'd be great to hear from you about how you think about it and also some of the progress you've made um, speaking to different um, researchers, companies about gene editing and, and, and other of these kind of drug repurposing type approaches that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, to start with, in terms of, of, I guess the ethics of cure, let's call it, it's, it's not something that I'd really thought about before I started working on this podcast, started doing all right. the research. And, um, you know, I, I still remember the first time that I put something out on Twitter saying like, I'm looking for a cure for my son, Bryson and another parent that I know of a child with a different, rare disease, um, tweet it back to me and say, like, why, why a cure? Like, what, what is it about a cure? What does that mean? And so that really got me thinking a lot about this. And when I uh, was putting the podcast together, we, we decided to do like a whole episode just talking about, you know, the ethics around the idea of cure. And, and it is quite complicated. And it's something that I'm still kind of thinking about and, and working my way through a lot. And part of it is because you know, um, people with many people with disabilities don't like the, the term at all. They feel like it kind of minimizes their existence. So, um, you know, if you talk about a cure for someone with cerebral palsy, um, you know, it, it can be an offensive term uh, right. to them. There are people who um, are in wheelchairs and, you know, feel that it's ableist to think that they should want to walk if they can get around just fine in the wheelchair. They feel like it's the world that should be, you know, changing that um, we have so many barriers to accessibility that we should be working on, on taking those down instead of having this focus on trying to change them. Now, Bryson's situation is different because he's got severe developmental delays. He's not really able to make up those kinds of decisions himself about what kinds of treatments he wants. So as his parents, we kind of have to do that for him. Um, so, you know, some of the, the things where I've kind of landed on it is that it, it is the right thing for me to do. Like it is a good thing for me to do as a dad to try to do whatever I can to help Bryson, to give him more agency, to be able to express his wants and desires, to be able to get around by himself. You know, right now he's in a wheelchair and we have to push it. I would love if he can either walk or push his own wheelchair, um, tell us when he's in pain and why he's in pain. Um, and, but at the same time, you know, I feel like I do have to put in the work to try to change the world and not just him. And so I'm trying to learn a lot more about disability politics and get involved in trying to, um, you know, improve the world, not just for Bryson, but for everyone with, with disabilities. And one example is just around, um, accessible washrooms for adults, right? So, uh, and, and obviously, you know, the, many washrooms have um, wheelchair stalls. And I think there's been a big campaign actually in, in the UK where you are to try to have more adult change tables and more washrooms. And I think the UK is a lot further ahead than where we are in North America in that regard. So there's a group that I'm just starting to get involved in that's really active and trying to promote that within Canada. Um, yeah. 
So go ahead, please. (laughs) I was just going to get to, um, you know, the other part of the question. Um, Remind me again, it was where, where we're at in our, in our search. Yeah, exactly. Where, where you are in your search. Yeah. So I would say that we're still um, pretty early. Um, You know, at at Cure Groom, we've decided that with the money that we're raising so far, what we want to do is focus on what we're calling foundational research which is, you know, the basic things that are going to make everyone, whether they're doing research at universities, hospitals, or pharma or biotech companies, more interested in research, researching and studying GRIN. So we're investing in animal models. We're investing in research to try to identify um, biomarkers that could help, you know, recognize if, uh, if a cure or therapy is working. Um, and we're investing in patient registries and, and natural history studies. Um, so, so that's kind of where we're focusing on, on right now. Our plan um, over the next year is to kind of build a consensus among families, researchers, and clinicians on what are the key questions that we need answered in order to um, develop cures and therapies for grin disorder. And so um, instead of the traditional model of a foundation where you kind of you know, raise money, and ask researchers to come to you with how they think they, sh- they could spend your money in the best way. Yeah. We want to prioritize how we think the money should be spent and then either go out and find the right people or have an RFP on a very specific area to get people to come to us on, on how they're going to answer that question. Um, this is something that uh, there's, a, there's a, a researcher called David Fagenbaum of the Castleman Collective who's uh, you know, published around how, how this can work. Um, and so we're, we're kind of using that model uh, in our in our attempts. So um, I think we're we're really still at the stage where we're laying the foundation, um, but certainly feel like we've got really good momentum. Cure Grin's only been around for a little over a year, and uh, you know we feel like we've we've come a long way already. Do you have a good example of of um, the kind of uh, request for a proposal or or the re- the patient led research question? that you all have in mind or a thing of, cause I think this is a really powerful concept rather than saying we have, you know, a, a couple hundred thousand researchers, please write grants and, you know, proposals and let us know what you want to work on and actually saying here are, here's one or several of our priorities. Um, if you think you can solve them or make progress, then write to us. I think that's really powerful. Do you have any examples already picked out or, or ideas? Yeah. Um, I, I, I would say we don't really have any picked out yet, but I can give you an example. And, and part of it is that I think that um, there's been many examples that we've heard from other rare disease foundations where what the researchers think a cure looks like is different from what families and patients right. think a cure looks like. And so a big part of it is, um, and, and you know, we're, we're going to be doing this shortly, but going to all of our community and saying like, what are the most important elements of um, helping your kids, of, of therapies and cures for your kids that we should be focusing on? So asking them, and, and you know, for some, they're going to say that it's epilepsy. For some, that they're going to say that it's helping my kid to be able to talk and, and, or, or at least to be able to communicate what he wants. Um, some are going to say that it's around um, improving cortical visual impairment. So a lot of our kids, um, you know, th- their eyes work perfectly fine, but the way that the vision gets processed in the brain is, is jumbled. So right. um, how can they get help with that? And so, par- so part of it is really identifying those kinds of things. Um, 
but that you know examples could be uh could be around those but they could also just be around you know we, we may say okay we know that um you could have a gene therapy that can target the brain that can repair the damage that the variant causes but we don't know what part of the brain is the most impactful is it the hippocampus is it somewhere else so you know an example of the kind of research we may do could be around um, doing a bunch of different tests on on um, small animals or even potentially it would need to get to, to primates which have a bigger brain and you know figuring out where do we need to target to have the best effect you all have received um some funding from the chen zuckerberg foundation which um which is up started by priscilla chan and, and mark zuckerberg and they have an, an an amazing um amount of funding available specifically for rare disease which which i think is great i wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about how you work with the foundation, how that process went. I, I think you were probably the, one of the first groups they awarded funding to. And, and I guess you're probably supplementing that with, um, with fundraising that you all are, are doing as a group as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we've, we've raised and our, our families have been great in terms of, of raising money for, you know, helping us find therapies and cures. Um, but the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, they did just, just over a year ago, they did, you know, a, a request for proposals from rare disease foundations. And, um, and it's interesting, like the way that they're choosing to invest their money around rare diseases, uh, a big part of it is not around funding actual research, but funding um, patient organizations and helping us to build capacity. So they initially had planned on funding 10 different organizations, um, but they got hundreds of, of applications and decided to fund 30. So we were one of the first 30. Um, it's a two-year program. And I think they're planning to, to fund more groups in the future. Everything's been, been changed a bit because just as the program was about to start was when um, coronavirus hit. And so, you know, there were going to be a lot of in-person conferences and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's really become a lot more virtual than the original plans. But it's just a, a fantastic um, just a fantastic thing because it's, it's funding, but it's also a lot of training and capacity building that just really is helping us get stronger as an organization. So, um, you know, everything from how do we, uh, get better at just our governance and our, uh, finances to how do we, um, become more effective and make sure we're investing our dollars more wisely as we, we invest in a search for a cure. So, um, so, so the money that we're getting from, from Chan Zuckerberg initiative has some stipulations around it where, you know, they don't want us to spend that actual money on, on the research. They want us to spend it on building capacity for our organization and building a global network of researchers and clinicians. And so, um, so that, that's what we're doing. And, and uh, it's been great so far. I think that's that's it's really smart because it's um it's it's like planting 30 seeds you know rather than hauling in the oak trees and saying chop them up you know and and spend it on research and and then we'll see what happens but they're seeding a um a, a network of patients and like you said training and and those sorts of things that mean you can create a sustainable uh foundation that can that can run for a very long time rather than putting all of your hopes on onto a small number of research projects that you know, as, as we know, most, most research hypotheses are wrong. And so there's a, there's a huge degree of, uh, of trial and error. You, you, you mentioned COVID there and actually someone 
asked about this in the chat about the mouse model. Um, and, uh, and, and I was interested in how much that has affected, not just the research that you have been doing, but operations more generally, have you been able to, to respond and, and do most things as, as a group remotely or, or has it slowed things down as labs are, are shut and some priorities are shifted? Yeah, it certainly has slowed things down. Um, you know, so, so a lot of, a lot of lab work that needs to be done in actual labs has, has been cut completely. Some of our researchers have had to call, um, you know, euthanized cages of animal models, um, because it just wasn't safe for them to have enough people in the labs. Right. And so, you know, fortunately every strain or every actual variant of, of animal model has been, has been kept. So we haven't, you know, lost too much, but, but all of that kind of research has been on hold. Um, I know a lot of most rare disease organizations say that their um, donations and funding have really suffered. Um, we're only in our second year, so it's hard to really compare. Um, but I imagine that we're we're you know behind where we would have been otherwise. Um, but in terms of the group functioning, we're we're all in different places. So the two co-founders, um, you know, I'm in Toronto. Denise uh, is in Denver. Jillian, who's who's a board member and, and really active, um, who was on uh, Jillian Hastings Ward was a guest on this podcast That's before. Right. Yeah. Um, so she's she's in in the UK. So you know we've got board members in the Netherlands, and um, so we're we're all over the place. So we we're kind of used to working virtually. So we've been able to kind of continue on with that. Um, a lot of the meetings, you know, we were planning to go to San Francisco and meet with researchers there. We were able to do most of those through Zoom. So it's not quite the same and there's more challenges, but um, I would say for the most part, although the research is on hold, we're able to continue moving forward. Right. I actually wanted to, to ask you a question related to, to Jillian, because I've, I've had the pleasure to interview quite a few very inspirational parents like yourselves who've dedicated themselves to, to research. So Jillian um, being one of them, also Matt Might um, mm -hmm. and Nick Soro. You also mentioned um, David David uh, Fagenbaum earlier. I was wondering whether you have mentors or 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 people like that 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 have been coaching you on this on this mission because I imagine this is the one of the most unique skill sets in the world, right? To build and and grow one of these things from scratch so you have to understand the science and the finance and how to deal with people all over the world working remotely and, and all kinds of things have you have you found other people like that or are able to help you go on the journey yes and um i would hesitate to even mention one because i think there's just been been so many um but I, I would say you know for the most part it's been um we, we've met them through organizations like Global Genes. We've met them through um, Rare as One. And there's just such a spirit of, of giving and collaboration. So, you know, whenever I have a question and, and I say, you know, who can help with this? Someone will say, oh, I know this person over here. Um, right. It's done this already. And that person is always willing and able to, to jump on a call um, to discuss it. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, that's one of the greatest things about it is just how, how much this community wants to help each other. There's, you know, we're fortunately we're all, we're all doing our own thing, but we're not competitors. We're all in this yeah, together. 
That's great. Um, I'd like to shift over to the Q&A now because we've had a couple come through. One of them, I think, is just amazing that um, she's found her way into the webinar. But Shilpa says, uh, my daughter is diagnosed with GRIN 2A and we're from London, UK. How can we be part of the CureGRIN Foundation for any research work? So that's great. Um, good, good to connect with, with you, Shilpa. Um, so we're, I mean, to find us, we're at CureGRIN.org. Um, we've, we've also got a, a fairly active group on Facebook. Um, we, we would love to, to get you involved. I don't know. Um, so we have a parent advisory committee. We have a number of subgroups from that committee, um, including groups that focus on, on science and, and research and w- would love to get you involved. So, um, I, I'll, is it okay if I give my email address here too? She can reach out directly. I'm Keith at curegrin.org. We'd love to hear from, from you or anyone else. Great. We have, uh, we have two questions from none other than my mother, Denise Short. With sequencing becoming, first one is with sequencing becoming more prevalent, are they discovering more cases of, of Bryson's condition? It's a great question, Mom. I was actually thinking of asking that one. And then the second one is, do you think there are misdiagnosed people, um, as in people who've, who may have the condition that have been told it was something else, um, who may not have received the, the appropriate testing? Uh, yes. Uh, so, um, so for the second, the second one first, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of people who were told initially that, that the doctors thought it was something else. Um, you know, in Bryson's case, no one really speculated, but there, I've heard many stories of other people who, um, thought it was, would probably rets or, or different things that, uh, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, these are things that could be more um, degenerative. And it, so that those false diagnoses that aren't based on actual um, genetic uh, reporting um, can be scary and, and not very helpful. Um, on the first question, uh, yeah, so we're, we're constantly seeing more families getting diagnosed with, with Grin disorder in the different genes. And specifically with Bryson's variant, you know, I think we were amazed when we first found another person with his exact variant, uh, an adult woman, I think she's, she's 30 now, who has Bryson's variant. And, you know, through the podcast, um, we meet more and more. And I think in the podcast, maybe at the end, we're up to six. And I think I think now we know of nine families in the world who have the same variant as, as Bryson's. Um, so that's, that's great. And uh, the, the more people there are with a single variant too, you know, the easier it is to kind of identify the phenotype of the variant and compare that to the mouse model. And um, yeah, it's great to have that yeah. community. I, w- I wonder if you can explain to people just how um, how that works and how vast the array of different um, possible variants is. So the I don't know how many amino acids the gene has, but it's a big string of amino acids. And my understanding is is um, it's not that everybody has the you know it's not a it's is it's not that everybody has the exact same variant um, as is the case in most um, rare diseases, but it's a missense variant in the case of um, this disease, which is doubly challenging because it's not that the, that the gene is truncated and you lose the protein, but it's actually that the protein is just subtly changed. And every family's, um, for the most part, well, the, the majority of people have a completely different protein, but in a, in a different way. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so, so there's two categories of it. The first one is, you know, that there are seven different genes that encode the NMDA receptor. So seven different proteins. 
the NMDA receptor is a tetramer, so four different proteins, four of those proteins coming together. Um, so, so there's at least four of those genes that we know of, or four of those, yeah, genes that, that have pathogenic disease-causing variants. Um, possibly more, but, but we're, we're, there's at least four that are confirmed. And then within that, so my son's variant is in the GRIN1 gene, there are, um, you know, I, th I think, I think, um, I don't know, for all of the genes, there's, there's roughly a thousand amino acids, um, give or take. And, you know, within each, each gene, um, there could be variants in any amino acid. There's some amino acids where could, there could even be different variants. So, um, you know, in Bryson's, in Bryson's GRIN1 uh, gene, where there should be, in one of the amino acids where there should be a glycine, there's an arginine, um, but it's also possible I, I, in theory that, that that glycine could be Something from a different else. amino acid yeah. that might have a different a different impact. Um, so so yeah, and, and all of these variants can have a different impact on how, you know, this, the structure. So for, in Bryson's, um, a glycine is a, a tiny amino acid I mean, they're, obviously they're all tiny, but it's, it's an extra tiny one. Tiny by um, comparison. With, <laughs> tiny by comparison with almost no um, electrical charge where an arginine is, you know, relatively a very large amino acid with a positive electrical charge. And so one of the things we don't even know yet, for example, is when they're, these come together in an NMDA receptor with two GLUN1 proteins, so the proteins made by the GRIN1 gene, um, if there's two of these ones with the, the mutation, two with the variant, can they even coexist together or are these two positive, um, positive amino acids uh, or positive arginines close together, can they even coexist or do they just blow up the, right. the NMDA receptor? So there's still so much that we don't know. And in fact, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is as, as we're going along with this, we've got maybe um, you know, a, thousand, a thousand patients in the world that we know of, only a couple hundred have been written up in the literature and, and we think we know a lot, but then you compare it with COVID-19 and what we're seeing now, where there's millions of people in the world and, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands that have been written up in scientific literature. Um, and we're still finding out new things every day. Like, it's amazing yes. how, how little we probably actually know about GRIN. Yeah. And, and I think um, that's, that's a big part of the challenge, right? Is that you, every time you peel back a layer of the onion, it's more complex and, and you have to go back to the um, to the lab, which can sometimes take years. Um, are you excited about the prospect of gene editing? Because this has come on the scene uh, in you know relatively recently, and, and only very recently has it been considered a, a potential therapy route for for rare diseases. I was curious of whether you all have commissioned or, or looked at any research around whether the condition is potentially reversible. Um, or, or whether it, you know, I know it's not uh, degenerative, but whether you can restore some kind of function potentially through, through editing, um, is, is that something you've, you've looked into at all? Yeah, it's definitely something that we're, we're looking into. Um, and you know, the indications are that in theory it should work. Um, one of the things that we talk about in the podcast is that, um, you know, using, using CRISPR, or uh, using gene editing on a, you know, in the blood or um, in the eyes or the liver. These are areas where, um, you know, it's easy to kind of use gene editing and um, for to, to kind of spread around and, and get to everything. Delivering it to the brain is much more difficult. So 
we feel like it's probably something that is many years away, somewhere between 10 and, and 50, if I can give a, an right. enormous range. Um, it's, you know, well, I think that it's likely that sooner than that, we'll see um, small molecule therapies that are more likely to help our kids. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of gene therapy really is the, the ideal situation because if we can get it to enough NMDA receptors, it could potentially, and, and, you know, especially if you do it with kids, it could potentially um, get to the, to the point where it would almost be like they don't have this disease at all. Right. So it's something that, you know, if you think of a cure as being something that is, is fully restorative, that, that takes the, the individual back to the wild type, this, this would be something that would do that. Amazing. We had a really great question come through, another one from Jesse. Um, so she said that her family, dad, uncle, and, and three others um, have been affected by a rare condition, potentially uh, something called Lowy's Dietz. Um, and she says that one of the challenges she faces if she goes to the doctor, they add something like scoliosis to the chart, goes to another doctor, they add something completely different to the chart. Um, and over time, it becomes a you know complete mess. You have this uh, spiraling database of symptoms that that actually is unusable for the doctors and, and unusable probably for the um you know for the person as well uh, and so she asked a pretty open-ended question of whether you have any ideas of how um how we how we can change this i think um jesse's in canada but um you know anywhere in the world do you have i know you have ideas around how patients can take back you know more control of their 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 data and, and um make sense of it as a group uh, oh, sorry, Jesse, he, uh, I, I called Jesse, she, thank you for correcting me. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Not necessarily. I mean, one of the things that it reminds me of, so we're, we're at this point now where there's a number of different rare disease or sorry, there's a number of different researchers that have started registries for grin disorder. And we're at the point where we're trying to bring them all together and kind of evolve them to a natural history study. And there's a handful of companies that do natural history studies by um, sort of getting access to the patient records and they use natural language processing to kind of scan all the patient records and, and develop a natural history study based on it. Um, so I, I what then the reason why I think of that is because I'm always curious, like if we were to actually do that with Bryson, would the results be anywhere similar to what um, my wife and I would report if, if we were to right. say it ourselves? I, I just don't know. So yeah, I can definitely see that, that being a problem. Um, and I wonder if that could be the case even more where, you know, the, the gene has sort of an unknown significance. If, if there's a gene that's identified that's contributing to a disease but it's not the only gene. And so, um, you know, it, it could, could relate to a number of different things, but I, I definitely see how that could be a concern. Absolutely. Um, so I'm just conscious of time here. We're coming close to the hour. If anyone has any last uh, burning questions, they can definitely put them into the chat. Um, to close out on my side, I was wondering if you could just give one piece of advice for parents who, you know, maybe are in the position you were in, five, 10 years ago, thinking about dedicating more time and, and maybe potentially a career shift into research. Is, is there anything that, um, that you'd, you'd recommend people think about if they're in that situation? No, I mean, you know, it's, it's tough. And I was, you know, I feel like I was in a privileged place where I was able to do this. And, um, 
you know, I was able to, um, because I, I'd already kind of done podcasting and done journalism, I was able to sort of do it um, in a way where I could also kind of support myself financially. So most people can't do that. It, it is a lot of work. Um, and so, you know, I, if you're able to, I definitely encourage you to do it. You can't do it alone. You got to find other, other parents that you can team together with. Um, but the other thing I think that's important to say is that, you know, taking care of our kids with rare diseases is so much work on its own. And if you don't have the time or energy to do this, that's okay. Like, yeah. you, you know, it's so hard to be a, a caregiver of a rare disease patient anyway. Um, and I think sometimes people have this guilt that they're not doing enough. Like if, if you're a caregiver of a rare disease um, child or parent, um, you're doing enough. I think that's a, that's great, and I and I also remember from the podcast you you had some support locally from the government, and I think it's also important to note that this isn't available everywhere. And, and when we talk about um, you know, we spoke about disability rights and um, and some of those things, are it, it seems to me like that's uh, that's an essential piece of the puzzle as well. Having having federal funding to help with caregiving for for children, parents, or or whoever, because it's. Um, I can I can only imagine how incredibly challenging it is to have a full time job and and be a full time carer like that. So even um, I th- I think what what is the what is it like in Canada at the moment? Are you entitled to a, f- a few hours a week or something like that? Yeah, it it actually depends by province, and in Ontario, it even depends on your your region. But um, Bryson gets uh, seven hours of support a week. He's not we're not using any of it now because we don't want you know, extra people coming into our home during COVID. Of course. But when, when things get back to normal, basically we had someone coming um, every morning helping him get ready to school that, that was uh, paid for by the government. Great. Well, thanks so much, Keith. I, I really appreciate you being part of this. And also thanks to all of the live guests for your, yeah, uh, for your Q&A. Uh, this will go out on the podcast in a few weeks. Um, but, but thanks to everyone. I think this was a really successful um, experiment. We're getting some thank yous through the chat for, uh, for you, Keith. So Thanks so much. I know your day's just starting. Um, and I, and I, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Patrick. And thanks to everyone who joined and asked questions. Really appreciate it.